You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this installment of our RSA C365 podcast series. We have a great podcast lined up for you today with our guests, Lee Morkessum and Camille Jackson-Singleton, who will be discussing their insights gleaned from hunting Sodanokidi, the king of ransomware. Here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now I'd like to ask Camille and Lenore to take a moment to introduce themselves before we dive into today's topic. Camille, let's start with you. Thank you so much for having us, Casey. My name is Camille Jackson-Singleton, and I am the Strategic Cyber Threat Lead for IBM Security's X-Force Threat Intelligence Team. And I've been doing intelligence analysis for a little over 15 years now. In my role at IBM, I take a strategic look at cyber threats and identify broad trends and activities. And the breadth of sudden Nikiti activity over the past two years is definitely one trend that has caught our attention. And, Limor, I'll hand it to you. Thank you, Casey. So good to be here and so good to be part of the RSA conference in any kind of measure. I've been with IBM for six years now and in the intelligence community for about 12 years now. I'm a security advisor at IBM. I'm involved in a lot of initiatives in security intelligence out and about, different conferences and steering committees and so on. And again, I'm just honored to be here on this podcast. Well, we are certainly honored to have both of you, so thank you so much for joining us today. Camille, can you start off by giving our listeners a little background about the Sudan Rukiti ransomware, maybe a little bit about how it operates, what we know about the group, and so forth? Absolutely. First, it's worth noting that the volume of Sudan Rukiti attacks we see is pretty high. So far in 2021, Sudan Nikibi has made up 33% of all ransomware attacks exports has observed where the ransomware strain was known. This is higher than the 22% for Sudan Nikibi attacks we observed in 2020, and Sudan Nikibi continues to be the most common ransomware strain exports remediate. And then in terms of operations, Sudden Akibi operates as a ransomware-as-a-service model, where central operators develop the malware and run the cartel and then contract out to affiliates the task of gaining access to victim systems and deploying the ransomware. Unlike other cartel groups, including its predecessor, GANCRAB, Sudden Akibi is very careful about the affiliates it chooses seeking to recruit only the most capable actors. In addition, Sudden Akibi specializes in big game hunting, meaning that these actors target large organizations with high yearly revenue and then seek to encrypt a large portion of the organization's enterprise network. In this way, the group positions itself to ask for high ransom amounts. And some recent ransom demands have stretched up to $50 million for this group. And this model stands in contrast to other ransomware groups that go after perhaps small and medium-sized businesses and then request a ransom of perhaps $5,000 or less. And then in addition to encrypting data, Kiwi ransomware actors also steal 
threatens his business data and then leak or threaten to leak this data to force victims to pay. Ransomware actors have noticed that more organizations are getting better at recovering independently from a ransomware attack using backup files. But now, even for victims that can recover successfully, the threat of reputational and legal damage due to leaked data adds an additional and painful calculus into the mix. We estimate that around 43% of sudden acuity victims had their data leaked. So that's an unfortunately high percentage. And Xsource estimates that Sodenikibi actors earned over 123 million U.S. dollars in ransomware revenue in 2020, a number that coincides with Sodenikibi ransomware actors' revelation in an October 2020 interview that they had made over $100 million. And the group probably stole around 21.6 terabytes of data in 2020 alone. The group appears to ask for a ransom demand tied to the victim's yearly revenue, with most ransom demands hovering around 1% to 5% of total yearly revenue. So they're definitely doing their homework and looking at their target very diligently to determine what they're going to charge for the ransom? Absolutely. Yes, they target very specific industries, and they do their homework on how much revenue their victims get in a given year. Often they're doing homework on whether their victims have cyber insurance as well. And all of this, unfortunately, Mm. is leading to pretty high revenues for them. Yeah. Lee Moore, can you give a little more detail about the level of sophistication of these ransomware actors, particularly as it relates to the encryption that Camille mentioned? Sure. Uh, you know, groups like this, um, they rely on encryption. And so and encryption in itself is something of a sophistication in the tech world. So the group behind Sodom Kiwi targets surprise networks. They have to be pretty skilled. They use living off the land tactics, which means they don't necessarily involve malware and malicious things in everything that they do. They keep pretty stealthy as they move through the network, you know, searching for data to still, searching for backups to, uh, to get, you know, what are they going to infiltrate. So unlike more amateurish groups, those who maintain Sodakibi also know their way around encryption. And with bad or poorly implemented encryption, we will see breakable keys and we'll see cases where the encryption can be decrypted. And they don't want that to happen, so they use very fast encryption schemes, uh, stream ciphers like self twenty and symmetric encryption of stolen data to ensure that the data they managed to capture is indeed encrypted before the operation can be halted. Uh, they use a combination of, you know, elliptic curve DC Hellman, different uh, types of ciphers and encryptions they use, and they make sure that they're able to both encrypt and decrypt their own malicious configurations and data and the user data. Then they generate a private-public key pair. They use another curve, 25519. You know, they have all these different... I don't want to get too much into the different cryptography they use. They can change them, of course, as well. But the bottom line is they make sure that everything happens very quickly. Another feature of their sophistication is constant evolution. We often see new features in the malware. Just in March, when 
of the Soda Kiwi operation had added new ability to encrypt files in Windows safe mode. So they used the F mode command line argument probably in order to automate, you know, encryption process and a detection tools that don't come up in safe mode. Or um, The new mode also required the user to log on to the device in safe mode, which could have looked suspicious. So they went ahead and added another feature. They changed the password and configure Windows to log in automatically with the new password after a reboot. So they're always looking for, you know, how can they cut out the user more out of the process and how can they faster uh, go ahead and encrypt data. So we're dealing with professionals, and I guess that's the gist of it. That's fascinating, the, the idea that, you know, so often we hear that, oh, ransomware is, you know, the not the fault of the user, but a victim calling for a phishing attack or something, but more and more they're moving toward just eliminating that human being's action altogether. Is that what I'm understanding? They can. I mean, they want to eliminate it from the process that, you know, once the malicious files are already on the device and they've already spread everything. Because a lot of these gangs, when we're talking about this more sophisticated professional cybercrime gang, they do a lot of work before they go ahead and launch the actual ransomware. They're going to map the network. They want to map the backups. They want to see what's there for them. What can they exfiltrate? That might take a little long to not cause a lot of noise on the network. So they're doing a lot of things before they actually launch it. But once they launch it, they do want to prevent anyone from stopping it. They want to make sure that there's the least amount of interference so they can encrypt data as fast as possible and then declare the system locked and ask for payment. Got it. Okay. So a question for both of you. Um, Camille, let's start with you. How are these ransomware actors gaining access? And how are they able to evade detection? Lamore mentioned that you know they're doing some reconnaissance before they actually launch the ransomware. How are they even getting in? Right. So in the incidents X-Force has remediated, sudden Kiwi actors have most commonly gained initial access through mouthman campaigns or through exposed remote access mechanisms or through exploitation of unpatched vulnerabilities. So those are kind of the top three infection vectors that we see. And I would say that phishing leads out of those three. We have also seen certainly key actors use obfuscated commodity malware, um, such as Quackbot, as an example, as well as built-in operating system tools, such as PowerShell, to gain an initial foothold in victim systems. And then to move laterally and evade defenses, suddenly TV actors have used a range of methods, including additional exploitation of unpatched vulnerabilities, removing or disabling antivirus solutions, and credential harvesting from memory through tools such as Mimikatz. So that's stealing credentials, guessing credentials, um, stealing hash credentials, but then using those to move around and gain access to new accounts on the system. And then when deploying ransomware, we often have observed Sodna QB actors gain access to domain controllers and from there use common tools such as PSExec and Windows Machine Interface to spread the ransomware network-wide. The attacks also seek to delete volume shadow copies of files on the file system, so basically back up copies that a victim might use to recover from a ransomware attack. So they want to make it harder for victims to recover from an attack using backups. 
I just I wanted to clarify the inability to recover using backups forces them to have to pay the ransom. Is that correct? Absolutely, one hundred percent. Okay. Sorry, Lamore, go ahead. I'm sorry, I was going to say that detecting an attack in these cases can be very tricky because most of what they do is, is uh, not automated. You know, if it was automated, we'd probably be able to put more security tools on it and, and detect things that are happening, but attackers that take part in infecting organizations with the Sodnokibi malware, they really undertake the operation mostly manually, and they can often pivot in real time if they believe that the attack can be discovered by the defenders before their goal is achieved. So who are they targeting? You you mentioned high-profile organizations, but who are their main victims? In general, they could target anyone that they choose, you know, but like many other groups, they do aim for sectors downtime would be more critical. So most Sodnikivi targets are companies in the U.S. In 2020, almost a third of all attacks we responded to uh, were in the healthcare sector, and they were ransomware cases. During uh, the third quarter of 2020, just one uh, quarter in a very stressful year, at least 11 organizations from the healthcare sector were targeted by operators of uh, Sodnikivi and other ransomware groups as well. So the attackers behind this group were pretty strategic with their target choice, as we mentioned. They plan pressure tactics well ahead of time. They're aware of market dynamics, yet can affect the victim's willingness to pay them. So a pretty notable example of that was a Sodnokibi attack that was um, targeted at a company called Quanta uh, that, you know, produces products for Apple. And that was just in April 21, just a couple of months ago. Uh, the group extorted the victim for $50 million. They're threatening to leak sensitive intellectual property to the public. And, of course, you know, Quanta refused to pay them. And during the delay in receiving the payment, they started leaking the data. And they did that right when Apple's very popular spring-loaded event was set to commence. So... You know, that was part of their tricks, that they're going to make the company really stressed out to pay them, and it probably worked. And where Sodium Acuity does not work, and on the flip side, is devices that feature keyboard layouts in Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, and a list of other languages from countries in that part of the world. So, you know, again, that's that's what most they do. And, Camille, you had a few notes about the sectors have been in as well, right? Yeah, and, and Limor, you made a great point that we've really seen market dynamics and geography affects the McKeeby's targeting. Um, and then in terms of industries targeted, manufacturing, professional services, and wholesale are the top three industries the McKeeby actors tend to target, making up 53% of all attacks according to our internal X-Force tracking. And for certain TV actors, manufacturing is probably an attractive target due to many manufacturing firms' low tolerance for downtime. I know you mentioned that as well, Limar. And the pain points a ransomware attack in this industry tend to cause. As certain TV actors capitalize heavily on stealing and threatening to leak sensitive data, um, professional services firms have been very attractive targets as well. As many of these firms house um, sensitive data on their clients that, if that data was leaked, would create reputational, legal, and other concerns. 
And for wholesale, these organizations focus heavily on getting goods and supplies to their clients, where timelines and schedules matter significantly. A ransomware attack has the potential to severely interfere with these distribution operations, creating pain points for wholesale as well. And so the TV actors have probably found that these targets have been a lucrative area for them to target also. And then in some cases, suddenly TV actors target defense contractors, including in countries that rival their assumed originating state, which is Russia. So it's plausible that espionage, both business and nation-state-driven, could be a secondary objective of the group. And we do know that Russian cyber criminals in general have been known to sell stolen data to the government. So that's kind of an interesting aspect of their targeting as well. Okay, so we understand how the group operates. We understand who they're targeting. What can organizations do uh, or what do they need to do, really, to mitigate the risk of a ransomware attack? Lamore, let's start with you. Well, with ransom demands in the millions, some estimates say that losses from ransomware attacks are going to total $20 billion globally by the end of this year. So it's a lot of money rolling in there. It's not very easy to prevent these attacks that are often very targeted and human-operated. But a few things that we definitely can do better can help us keep the attackers at bay or at least uh, reduce what blast radius, you know, kind of keep them constricted in certain places. So keeping employees informed and prepared is essential to responding in time and taking the right actions early. You know, you want employees to report things, to tell their IT staff immediately if something goes wrong, and kind of like the the things we do first are always the most critical. We want to implement multi-factor authentication on all remote access points into a network, and this should be stressed a 100 times. I think this is one of the things that's working best for security, and uh, whoever has not rolled it out yet and has had it on their roadmap, please consider doing it ASAP. Uh, employing email protection, blocking programs to protect against phishing, give a good robust patch management program that scans for vulnerabilities and prioritizes those most applicable to, you know, the environment, to the attack types they might encounter. And also, as we mentioned before, expect living off the land tactics here and think of ways to use threat hunting to keep tabs on typical ways by which those Nikibi operators will try to infiltrate the network. Absolutely. And a few additional ones I might add to the list is to use behavioral-based anti-malware protection solutions to protect against obfuscated commodity malware and also to use macro execution blocking to prevent the use of malicious macros. So out of all the ransomware attacks X-Force has remediated over the past year and a half, phishing emails, usually with attachments containing malicious macros that then drop commodity malware, um, this is really the most common used infection vector that we're seeing right now. So both of those measures can assist in detecting and defending against that particular infection method. And then also employing the principle of least privilege, including limiting administrative access and carefully managing and monitoring privileged access. This will make it more difficult for threat actors to find opportunities to escalate privileges once they are in the system. 
and employing an endpoint detection tool for enhanced network traffic analysis and monitoring can really assist as well. X-Force has clients who are able to detect and stop ransomware attacks before the ransomware was deployed due to the added visibility provided by endpoint detection solutions. So this can be a very powerful tool for catching and preventing these attacks. In addition, I would definitely underscore that any organization should have and drill a response plan for ransomware that includes recovery from backup and encryption of sensitive data to decrease its usefulness if stolen, and perhaps also having alternate locations from which business critical functions can run, and codifying and drilling your response plan so that your team has the muscle memory to respond in the crucial moment can really go a long way in improving resilience against these attacks. Um, and I'd also emphasize that when planning these incident responses around a sudden QB attack, keeping in mind that these attacks will quickly evolve into extortion. So planning ahead with legal and cyber insurance advisors to make sure everyone is on the same page can really go a long way. I think what stands out to me most from what you both just went over in response to that question is that there is no one thing that you can do, right? The organizations need yes. to really take this defense in depth and layered approach. And, you know, fortunately with this ransomware group, it seems like they're targeting the larger organizations that can afford to have these bigger security teams that maybe can implement all of these tools that you're talking about and, and these policies and procedures. What about smaller organizations, though? Well, it's not, they don't only target large organizations, they target anyone, and ransomware groups in general have had uh, companies go under. You know, if they've been hit by, and they're asking for quantities that they can, amounts of money they cannot pay, if they're hitting uh, smaller, you know, social organizations, you know, that happened with DarkSide, that happened with Egregor. These are ransomware that, you know, would bring a company to its knees. So, even if a company cannot pay a ton of money to the security program and have a very robust uh, tooling and everything, I think the number one thing is to train your employees. Make sure they know what it's about, how it can happen, um, who they should uh, report to. Also, there are things that don't cost money. They're open source tool. Uh, there's also, let's say if we talk about stuff like zero trust, it's an approach. You know, it's an architecture. You can use what the big companies use on your own networks. It doesn't have to cost a ton of money. But, you know, again, ransomware attacks are difficult to detect or difficult to contain. Any company would need to have uh, certain controls in mind and also an incident response. So even if you have nothing, but you have incident response and you have a way to start escalating to your top tiers of your company and trying to contain the damage, uh, that will go a longer way than anything else. Thank you for that. Um, you know, in in light of the conversation and the headlines that we're seeing, it's hard not to think about organizations that will choose to pay, right, looking specifically at Colonial Pipeline and the whole aftermath of their attack. Before we wrap up, I would like each of you to just speak to the audience about this question of whether to pay the ransom or not. And 
maybe consider taking a, a, a realistic angle from the corporation's point of view of, you know, that conundrum that they're in. They're sort of stuck between a cactus and a prickly thing, right? And, and what do you do with that? Absolutely. So we recognize that ransom payments can be tempting, but of course they're not a guarantee that the cyber criminals will meet their ends of the bargain. So there was a report done by Naked Security that showed that of the targets who met the attacker's demands, one-third got less than half of their data back. And then in addition, about 50% of them lost more than a third of their data, and while just 8% got all of their data back, there was 4% of the respondents that got nothing for their money. So those are statistics to keep in mind. Those just showed that just because you pay the ransom, it doesn't mean that you're going to get all of your data back, that the decryptor will work perfectly, that it will work quickly. Um, there's a lot of variables to consider. With all of this said, we recognize that whether or not to pay the ransom be an agonizing question for a ransomware victim in the critical moment. And even if your organization can recover independently from an attack, if your backups are safely stored, if the attackers are not able to get to them and encrypt them as well, um, it, perhaps you have an alternate location for critical business continuity, um, even if you have all of that in place, the threat of stolen and leaked data can add an additional factor into the calculus. So, I mean, our recommendation is definitely to avoid paying a ransom if at all possible, as ransom payments are only perpetuating the ransomware problem. But we recognize that considerations for lost data really need to be part of the calculus to allow a victim organization to fully avoid paying that ransom altogether. Um, so things like data encryption, data loss prevention programs, behavioral-based anti-malware protection, network traffic analysis, all these can help organizations protect against data theft, address that data loss problem head-on, and avoid paying a ransom. And, Limor, I know this is a question that you have looked at a lot, um, and I know you have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I agree that we shouldn't be trying to pay ransoms. So do the attackers in specific also try to make good on their promise, right? Um, they want to make sure that payments keep coming, so they have to show that, you know, they're providing the keys, they're providing whatever they promise. But in reality here, there is no way to say that their threats to sell the stolen data are not occurring in the background and behind the cloak of the mutual agreements or other clandestine payments that they're doing. They could be selling it to competitors. They can do basically whatever they want except for deleting it or selling it to a foreign government of God knows what. Um, nobody can guarantee to the victimized organization that the cloud where the data was kept wasn't compromised. Nobody can tell them that data wasn't replicated by the cloud provider for whatever reason or maybe to be accessed by other parties. It's a super tricky situation that's really best prevented, uh, if at all possible. And you may have also heard that paying cyber criminals in sanctioned countries in the U.S. is now a federal offense. So it's important to be aware that in the U.S., government officials suggest expanding the Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, it's known as RICO, to also target ransomware gangs. And then using State Department powers, such as denying visas and tools, to pressure other governments. Um, you know, even if we want to pay a ransom, what if it's a... Uh, 
a country that's on the sanction list, all of a sudden the executives in the company can become criminals. So paying criminals is becoming harder over time, and I think it's high time for us as an industry and the relevant regulators around us to find more innovative solutions to this problem and rethinking our organization's resilience status, how we bolster that to find new ways to protect users, to protect data, and the ever-expanding edge that we have in technology. And, Lamar, could you talk a little bit about organizations and how they can set themselves up for resilience? If I had to talk about it today, I would say the threat landscape has been changing. And attackers are very quick to adopt new technologies, and they are not afraid to use them against us. We cannot continue to use the same approaches, the same technology, the same way we treat users and customers, and believe that while everything else is changing and burning around us, might I say, especially recently, that it's going to continue to work for us the way it has. We have to change the way we do things, uh, change our approach, start in new terms, if we think about zero trust and go and start, you know, changing our architectures, not saying go and buy things. Throwing technology at this problem is not what's going to solve it, but we have to change how we do it. If your data is not encrypted and and a criminal stole it, you could have encrypted data. There are new ways to do that. If you cannot encrypt it because you need to use it and that's when it's stolen, there is new homomorphic encryption. It can keep the data encrypted in use. Uh, there is cybersecurity mesh. There are ways to make the, everything more modular. We just have to change the way we look at it and to understand that while everything else is moving around us, uh, we also have to move at the times. And I think this is a really critical time to do it. We've had years with a lot of security problems and breaches, but I think one of the worst ones has been 20 and 21. During just the first six months of the year, we have been seeing such large-scale attacks, both by cyber criminals and nation-state attackers, and uh, it's just a call to action for us to start moving as well. Absolutely. Camille, did you have anything to add to that? I would just emphasize, again, all of the remediation measures we've taken. And, and Casey, I know you yourself were emphasizing that there's no one There's no golden ticket that will get you out of a ransomware attack, including sudden acute ransomware attacks. So using layered approaches um, and really planning for an attack, expecting that it's going to come and being ready, having a plan, drilling that plan. And so when the critical moment comes, everyone's on the same page. We have seen multiple organizations recover quickly and successfully from ransomware attacks. Um, where there's not days and days of downtime, where they're not flashed all over the front page of every newspaper, it is possible to successfully recover and to successfully prevent ransomware attacks as well. Um, so we just emphasize that your organization can do that too, and it's just about preparation. What would be great if those were the headlines, though, right? Not how it takes you down or how you have to pay for it, but you can recover from it. And those are the stories that aren't really told as loudly because they don't, they don't get the clicks. Yeah. Camille, Lenore, this has been a fascinating and I think timely conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much listeners for tuning in. Here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month and I encourage you to subscribe on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. Also, we accept submissions to our RSAC 365 Cybersecurity Learning Program year-round. 
Want to share your expertise with us on a podcast, webcast, or blog? Visit rsaconference.com forward slash become a contributor to learn more. Thank you, everyone.